message today is from Philippians chapter 4, of chapter 4, but we'll be looking at verse 8 and 9 today, uh, Philippians chapter 4, the, the great passage about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, think on these things and practice them. And so we will be considering practicing godliness today. Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Cynthia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know, know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Our thought life is often very critical in what we are as a person and what we do. And Paul has been stressing and encouraging the Philippians to be careful, not just in their thinking, but in their actions, in their words, and encouraging them, exhorting them in this book of Philippians, to lead a more godly life, a life worthy of their calling in Christ, a life worthy of being a Christian. And so he's coming now to the end of the book, and he's kind of wrapping up his ideas of what he's trying to teach them and encouraging them to live that godly life, to practice their godliness. Now he starts the section off with, a list of good things, godly things. And he wants to start off with that by, by drawing a picture for us of what we should be thinking about, what we should be doing, what we should be living in our lives. So he starts off with whatever is true. Now, today, if you want to talk about truth with people, you'll find that postmodernism reigns in America, even in many churches. It says, like Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? 
It's relative to who you are. It's relative to what you want it to be. It's relative to your perspective. People will say, oh, you have your truth and that's good for you and I have my truth and that's good for me. As if there was no absolute truth. It's very subjective, very relativistic, and they reject the idea completely of there being absolute facts. Reality is not reality, it's what you perceive. And so truth is then what you perceive, which is influenced by what you want, by what you desire. That's the world's truth. But as Jesus says in John 17, 16 through 18, you're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You know, there is truth, real truth, absolute truth, and it is what sanctifies us. It is what makes us holy, makes us godly, draws us near to Christ and to his Father. And that is the real, absolute truth, which is found not in the imaginations of men, not in the wisdom of unbelievers, not in the great scholarship and learning of the Greeks and the Romans and their philosophers, but is found in the Word of God, revealed to us by God himself, who knows everything perfectly. See, one of the reasons people deny the possibility of truth today is because we're not omniscient. You saw one thing, I saw from a different angle. We compare our stories, they're different. You have your truth, I have my truth. But God sees all things, and he sees them all perfectly, and he understands them all perfectly. His truth really is absolute. We may be mistaken. If you've ever been involved in an incident or an accident, everybody has a slightly different story. But God knows, and God's word is truth. The word of God... Psalm 119 speaks of it often in verse 160. It says, The sum of your word is indeed truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Now, the word of God is absolute truth for us. It is the only absolute truth we really have. What it says is correct. It is not, there's no error. It cannot fail. It cannot be reversed. It is reality. It is the absolute truth. And so, whatever is true, the things that are true in accordance with God. You know, we hear people say, well, did God really say? And does it really mean? But we look at the Word, and we look at our God, and we pray, and He reveals these truths to us through His Word. So, the foundation, really, of everything that we are to be Everything we want, everything we desire, everything that is right before God is really found in the word, and that is the truth that we have to live by. And so whatever is true is good for us to think about. And he says, whatever is honorable. Now, the definition here of the Greek word has to do with something being august, venerable, or reverend, uh, meaning has such a good character and a good report that it's deserving of honor and respect. You know, whatever things are deserving of being honored or respected are things we can think about. The word is used in the New Testament almost exclusively, well, exclusively by Paul, and it's meant to mean, translated normally as dignified. 
Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not dis- greedy for dishonest gain. 1 Timothy 3.8. A few verses later in verse 11, their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so this idea of being honorable or, or dignified has to do with our behavior, our actions, our life. The opposite of being double-tongued, drunk, greedy, slanderers, flaky in our minds instead of sober-minded, unfaithful. Those are the, this is the opposite, those things that are, bring honor to the name of God, to the kingdom of God, and to his people. He tells Titus in Titus 2, 1 and 2, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith and love and steadfastness. And so we have this idea, those things that bring honor to God's name, that bring honor to others, are things that we should be meditating upon, thinking about, rehashing in our minds. You know, we have a tendency to think about what? The bad they do. You know, they can do a thousand good things and they stumble once, and our nature says we remember the once, and that's what we talk about, and that's what we think about. But that's not what God wants. That's not helpful to our sanctification, not helpful to God's glory. And so we are not to think like that. We are to think whatever is just. Now, the Greek word here is really talking about being righteous and observing the law, God's law, the divine law. The way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches, and I meditate upon your precepts and fix my eyes upon your ways, I will delight in your statues and not forget your word. Psalm 119, verse 14 through 16. You know, we are fixed on what God says is right. What God says is just. The justice of this world is injustice. Social justice, the big thing now in many churches even, is really about you know, enforcing racism and hatred and injustice. As an excuse, they call it justice. True justice is observing what God has said. And God has always called people to that kind of justice. In Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 23, it says, you know, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlet before your eyes, and you shall teach them to your children talking to them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, and when you lay down and when you rise. It's exactly what Paul is talking about in this passage. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children will be multiplied in the land. The Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. And if you will be careful to do all that I have commanded, and I commanded you to do, Loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out these nations before you. Note, though, that the word, the truth, the things that are just, they're to be fixed on them. They're to talk about them with each other. They're to write them where they can see them, to be reminded of them at all times. I know when I first became a Christian and was struggling with sin, you know, really trying to reform and change my life and be transformed by the power of God, I decided at one point to write down the scripture verses 
that really spoke to my needs. The things I was doing wrong, the things I was not doing, the things I needed to hope in. And I put these eight and a half by 11 and I put them in frames and I put them in various places, various places in the house where I would constantly see them. And on a regular basis, I would switch them so that I could see them all. You know, to remind myself day and night when I wasn't thinking about those things, walking by and saying, oh yeah, that verse, that truth. And that's kind of what Paul is getting to here in Philippians. That, you know, the word of God, the truth of God, the honorable things are, are called to us from his word so that we know what they are and we're reminded and encouraged to do them and to do just obeying God's word. He goes on to say, whatever is pure. Now, the pure here has to do with being venerable or sacred, pure from sin and corruption. Uh, the world loves its immorality. They love to joke about it. They love to think about it. They love to show it on TV. They love to force it in your face. They want you to accept their impurity. And they want you their impurity to reign supreme. But we aren't to think about those things, but to think about what is pure, what is right, what is good. Purity here is really freed from the corruption of this world, pure in God's sense. And he goes on to say, whatever is lovely. Lovely here is things that are pleasing, things that are agreeable. He's not talking about physical beauty that the world focuses on, but the spiritual beauty and pleasing things. Peter talks about this with wives in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. He says, wives, likewise, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not believe the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, braiding of the hair and gold jewelry and fine clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, the things that are lovely are not the things that the world focuses on being pretty and desirable, but the things that God says are beautiful. A pure heart, a clean heart, proper behavior, a proper life, submission to his will and to his word and to his law, which works out in our life. Notice he says, he's saying this to people who have been converted to Christianity, and he's telling them that even if your husband doesn't believe, your treatment of him, your, your demonstration of your faith, by the way you live, is enough to convict him, if the Lord will use that. And it says, whatever is commendable, as in something that we want to be encouraged, and we like, and we say, look, look at what he has done. That is the way it should be done before the Lord. You know, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is full of examples of men who are being commended for their faith. Hebrews 11, the first three verses, it starts off. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are not visible. Note, they received their commendation for their faith, their trust in the things that had not happened, the promises that they could not see fulfilled. And for many of them, they did not see it in the whole lifetime, but some did. That hall of faith, if you read through that and you think about their lives, their stories, you know, they have their sorrows, their hardships, their sins. One of the things that makes Christianity unique is that we see the sins and failures of the heroes of our faith. Because they're men. Only God is perfect. But we can read about their faith and about their return to God and their confidence in God. And we can be encouraged by these things. Whatever is commendable before God is something we should be meditating upon and thinking about and rejoicing in. But Paul isn't just giving us a list of things. He wants us to think about them. He wants us to act on that list. He continues on saying, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, the list he gave is not exclusive. Anything that is excellent, anything that is bringing about moral goodness and representing moral goodness, as the word there means, excellence, anything like that we should be thinking about. We should be spending our time not thinking about the worldly problems and the worldly wickedness and how we're you know, enjoying the things of this world but on the things that are glorifying to God and things of heaven. If we think about how much time during the day do we spend thinking about various things, I challenge you to keep a record one day. (laughs) What did you think about in the last half hour? Hmm. Was it things that are excellent before God? Things that are commendable before God? You know, I hope we're seeing a pattern here. The pattern here is there's a difference between praiseworthy things before God and worldly things. In Colossians chapter 3, the first five verses, Paul says, Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is of earthly nature in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, this is the distinction being made here with Paul's list is between the things of God in heaven and the things of this life in this world. And all of us, I would be willing to bet, spend far too much time thinking about the things of this world and not enough time lying awake at night thinking about the glories of God and all that he has done. He's calling us here to really think about these things. The idea of the word carries the idea of to count up, to weigh, to reason, to deliberate upon. 
In other words, we take all the information and we think about how it works together. We think about why. We think about our own life and how it compares. We, we meditate upon it, to use the biblical word, not the transcendental meditation of India that's become the new age in America, but meditate as in reasoning through all these things, calculating what God has said and making it understandable to us and applicable to our life. Again, you know, the word of God is really the standard of both what is excellent and what we should do with it. Joshua was told in the beginning of the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night so that you are careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. What he's telling Joshua to do, you read the word, you interpret the word, and particularly in the, in the night, you think back to the things that have happened to the day and said, was I really doing what I should be doing according to the word, according to God? Was I really glorifying God? Was I really acting in faith? Was I really turning my back on the worthless things of the world and focusing my heart and my desire on doing what is right before God, what glorifies his name, what is praiseworthy before him, what is commendable before him. So whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, all of these things should be the focus of our heart, and they are the opposite of the things of this world. Paul says in Romans 8, 5 and following that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. He's giving us a list of those things to help us think about the right things in our life. To help us shift our focus from the things of the world to the things of the Spirit, to the things of God. And In Romans 8 he goes on to say, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Peace not with the world, but with God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. As long as we're still thinking of fleshly things and desires, we cannot please God. It's that simple. Jesus tells us about this in Luke chapter 6, verse 43 and following, when he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes from brambles. The good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure in his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Where our heart is, where our thoughts are, what we are considering and worrying about and thinking about and enjoying, that will come out in our life. That comes out in our deeds. Which is why he goes on to say, practice these things. What you have learned, what you have received, what you have seen and heard in me. Now, I've got to ask you, is it Paul's religion? 
But are we, as the liberals say, this is what Paul has invented as his religion when he hijacked the Christianity of John and Matthew and those guys. Is that following Paul and not Christ? Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 12 and 13. He says, what I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, Paul is not saying, follow him as Lord. Follow him as the inventor of a religion. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He is holding himself up as an example they have seen, that they can touch, that they can talk to. An example who admits in the, earlier that he has not yet achieved perfection. Right? It is an example, though, of things they should be doing in their own lives. And we can read what Paul has done and said and lived. And we don't follow Paul or Christ, but we follow the Lord of the Scriptures. You know, the people who, who make a big fuss about, you know, that's Paul's religion, I follow Christ, are not following the Christ of the Bible, because that is what Paul is speaking of. They're following the Christ of their own imagination. The entire reimagining God movement in the liberal churches speaks pretty clearly to that. They want a new God who follows their desires. And so they try to make this artificial division. We don't want to get lost in nonsense like that. Paul is saying, follow me as I follow Christ. I have done some of these things. I represent some of these things that you can see just as when you go to the 11th chapter of Hebrews, you see a long list of Old Testament saints and all that they had suffered and all that they did and follow them. Remember what Paul talked about in the last chapter? Brothers, join in imitating me, chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many who I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Paul's list here is to help us see the heavenly godly things. He goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Now, our imitation of Paul is saying, you know, the things you've learned, the doctrine he has taught, the things you have heard and received, that doctrine, that is what you are to imitate. That is what you are to think about and meditate about. And as I have lived that, Paul says, so look at that example. We have both the doctrines and personal examples in, in, in Paul written down for us in Scripture. And he calls on us, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greek or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. 
1 Corinthians 10, 31 and following. Now the example he has left is glorify God with your entire life and humble yourself so that you can serve God's kingdom. And so that's why he is telling us in this passage to practice these things. We remember James chapter 1, verse 22, right? Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. A great many people in the world, in the church, they have heard the Bible, they can quote the Bible, they can tell you you're wrong according to the Bible. But are they really living it? You know, there's always a certain amount of hypocrisy in the Christian because we say, be perfect as God is perfect and we're not perfect. But the real hypocrisy is when we're not trying, but we're condemning others. You know, we can hear the word, we can quote the word, we can say what it means truthfully, but if we're not living it out in our lives, we're deceiving ourselves. And that's a sad thought. We don't just do these things once to get our ticket punched either. And say, well, here's a list of good things. I check off each one I've done. Now I don't have to worry about that ever again. Thank God. No. You know, he says practice these things. Do them over and over again until they become perfect. And even once they're perfect, continue to practice them as your normal mode of behavior. Think about them. Consider them, reason them carefully, understand them, put them into practice in your life, and make that practice last forever. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You know, the one who falls is the one who starts down the road of Christ and persecution or troubles or trials or suffering come and they turn away. Or they start down the road of Christ and they get entangled by the wonders and the pleasures of the world and they fall away. He's saying practice them continually and you will not fall. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. So many such encouragements in Scripture. And this practice is not just to practice thinking, but to practice doing. It's about obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says, John 14, 15. In Matthew 7, 24 and following, he says, if you, Everyone who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. I have a feeling that's going to happen this year, even more extreme than it has in the past year. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You know, it's all centered around doing, living our faith, exercising our faith by doing it day by day by day. And the way to do that is by looking at all of these good things that he has called us to do and shifting our focus from the things of the world to the things of God. Whatever is good, 
whatever is just, whatever is holy, whatever is true, honorable, pure, all of those things. Fill our heart with those every day. And we run into a problem times like this where we fill our hearts with the news and what happens. Do we even have the strength to pray? We should. Should fill our hearts with sorrow, but then turn to the Lord and think about all the things that he has done, all the good that he is, all the glory that he has, and all those who have come before us and faced worse things than we will ever face. Think about those things and then do them. And he says, and the peace of God will be with you. He mentioned this a little earlier. We looked at it last week. That peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, we were once enemies because of sin. We were once at war with God. But now we've been reconciled by the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 10 and 11. For if while we were sinners, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were enemies, and now we are beloved children through Christ. And that has taken away the warfare and given us the peace of God. The peace of God is not perfect in our lives. There are times when we feel it far from us. We are troubled, we are aggravated, we are fearful of God, fearful of the world, struggling in sin. Hebrews 12, 3-8 we read, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And you struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises everyone whom he receives. For it is discipline you endure, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Now we are children of God, sons of God. When we fall away from him, when we go back to our sins, like a pig to its wallow and a dog to its vomit, a separation comes between us and God. Because we have departed from him and from his way. And we don't have that peace in our heart. But that peace can come back. It's a hard road. A hard road. But if we focus our hearts on the things that he has called us to, on the truth, the goodness, the righteousness, the just things, the holy things, the pure things, then we can turn ourselves around back to God. Prayerfully be restored as his children, enjoying once again that peace which surpasses all understanding. God's presence and God's peace should be very precious to us as children of God. 
that relationship should be vibrant and we should be desiring to keep it at the forefront of our life every day. You know, when we first fell in love with our spouse, it was the most exciting thing and probably occupied all of our thinking. But we should never lose that thought. We are the bride of Christ and we should always be like that with him, wanting to be close, wanting to keep ourselves from falling away, keep ourselves from driving him away. And we do that by meditating upon and treasuring and doing the things of God. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about those things and practice them. And that will transform our heart. Now Paul is saying, what you have seen in me, think about his life. Even in this book, this one book of Philippians, you know, we see in the beginning, chapter 1, his sincere love for those people, his desire for their souls, for their spiritual well-being, even for their physical well-being. Now, he's in prison suffering and he's worrying about them. Think about that. Meditate upon it. Imitate it. We see in it his joy in Christ, even though he is in chains. Can we have joy in Christ, in sickness, persecution, troubles and trials? You know, think about what he was suffering. Think about what Job was suffering. Think about what the God's people have suffered in the scriptures. And yet their confidence in Christ and God was not lost. And so we can think about those things. Think about his joy and confidence in death. He says, I don't know which to choose. I'd like to be dead, so I'm with God. But I think it's more needful for me to stay alive to take care of you. Uh, we see his joy in that. And that's something we should be meditating upon and thinking about. How can a man say that he'd rather be dead and be with God? Yet, he's not going to kill himself. He's not saying, I'd rather be dead and be annihilated and be gone from all the suffering, which people foolishly think and commit suicide. No, he's saying, I'd rather be home with the Lord and absent from the body. But those are things we can meditate upon. Think about his humble circumstances and the joy and confidence he had in those. And we have that great list in Second Corinthians chapter... Uh, I don't remember the chapter. In Second Corinthians... It talks about all the things he suffered, the shipwrecks, the hunger, the thirst, the, the bandits, and all the other troubles and trials and persecutions. And yet he has great joy in his service to God and doesn't stop. We can think about that. Sometimes, you know, I don't know how you are, but sometimes the weight of the world makes me want to just give up. You know, it's hard to struggle on and on and on and on, year after year, decade after decade. We can look to Paul. He didn't give up. He fought the good fight. He ran the race all the way to the end until they cut his head off for his faith. Uh, think of Paul when Epaphroditus was sick and they hear about it and they're worried about him, the burden that put in his heart. These people are troubled because I have their pastor helping me and he's fallen ill. You know, 
Think about the compassion that he had and, and imitate it. Think about his patience and long-suffering with the weak Christians. You know, in time, God will make that known to them. Uh, he, he endured a lot of persecution for his faith, and he had to endure a lot of weak Christians who were being confused and deceived by false teachers. And yet, he was patient and long-suffering, and loved them, and was more worried about their souls. And even those he was convinced were not going to be saved, were not saved, he says, he tells them with tears that they are enemies of Christ. Think about that. There are all these things, and all of those things we read in uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews that we can think about, that we can respect, that we can honor, that we can imitate in our lives. Those really help to shift our focus. And it's not hard to get depressed between the dem panic pandemic and the election and the closure of churches. You know, during these times especially, we need to be thinking about the glories of God and the way others have endured far greater trials than us. So as we think about those things and meditate upon them and apply them to our own hearts and live them in our lives, we can call upon the Lord to give us strength to do so. Let us do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would bless us and strengthen us, that we might consider all of these wonderful things, the true things, honorable things, just things, pure things, lovely things, commendable things, everything that is excellent and praiseworthy, that we might fill our hearts with those and meditate upon them and be of good courage and good cheer and act them out in our lives and have that, therefore the peace that comes from you. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.